Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Russ Ramsey on loving art through the eyes of faith. If we really want to go through the world coming to know who God is as best as we can, we won't be able to do that without engaging with beauty um, because he is beautiful. He is, he is glorious. And one of the ways that human beings engage with beauty is through art. Russ Ramsey next. Nashville pastor Russ Ramsey has a passion for art and a fervent belief in its power to change lives. He introduces us to a number of famous artists and their works in his book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith. Russ Ramsey is a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Pastor Ramsey, tell us about your background in art and why you wrote Rembrandt is in the Wind. My art teachers in school, um, in middle school and high school in particular, uh, and I dedicated this book to them actually, um, were, were did a really wonderful job of teaching those those who were interested uh, in how to develop a lifelong love for art. And and um, and I was one of the students that really just kind of latched on to um, Vincent Van Gogh and. Um, and Rembrandt, uh, when I was just in in middle school and high school, just were, was fascinated by their their art. And one of my art teachers uh, told us, if you want to have a lifelong appreciation, love of art, uh, find an artist that you connect with, mm-hmm. and then just pay attention to them for the rest of your life. And they will they'll introduce you to their their peers, and they'll introduce you to their mentors and the people who inspired them, and and uh, and you'll develop this kind of growing. Um, knowledge of of who these people are and what they did, and so that's kind of been the, my journey into it. I, I I wasn't an art student in college. I, I I'm a pastor and an author now. I I've been a musician over the years, and and uh, and art has always played a, an important role um, in the way that I approach things. But but I've I've never personally been much of a visual artist, um, and and uh, but but what I what I have been is just very curious about stories. Um, and the the book Rembrandt is in the Wind is a collection of ten stories about different artists or works of art, um, sort of getting into where did these things come from and 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 why has the world connected to them the way that they the, the way that we have and and uh, to really uh, kind of plumb the depths of that. So so if you're wondering what the book is, it's storytelling. It's it's stories. Uh, they happen to be about art um, and uh, and ho- hopefully in ways that that really help us. Um, connect more deeply with the the importance of beauty and the role that it plays in our world, but also in, in, with just the 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 brokenness and the redemption in the world too. It's those stories are just all the way through. Well, in a world and in a church which often um, relies on the pragmatic things that work, things that are practical, give us if you could just just a couple of reasons maybe why Christians should care about art. Well, because when God describes Himself. Uh, in scripture, one of the things that he talks about is his glory. Uh, and one of the things that we read about in scripture, whether it's Moses wanting to see God uh, and not being built to be able to handle the radiance, or Isaiah, uh, you know, when he's in the throne room of the Lord and the angels are covering their faces and he's having, you know, that that the, the beauty and the glory of God is, is a part of who he is. Uh, the world that he has made for us is teeming with beauty. 
and and it didn't have to be that way, right? He made it this way um, as an expression of his character, as part of his fingerprint. So as Christians, if we really want to go through the world coming to know who God is as best as we can, we won't be able to do that without engaging with beauty, um, because he is beautiful. He is he is glorious and one of the ways that human beings engage with beauty is through art, uh, is through going and putting ourselves in the presence of things that people have regarded down through centuries as being uh, some of the best that we've ever been able to come up with, you know? And so it's it it does its work on us in ways that's different than, than if we just know data. Um, beauty gets past a lot of our defenses. It, it, it teaches us things that are true uh, in ways that we want to receive from it. And uh, so those are, those are some of the reasons why it's important. But the, the chief among them for me is just that, that to know God is, is, is to engage with something beautiful, to engage with someone beautiful, and training our hearts to, uh, to engage with beauty and to understand it and to want to recreate it uh, is an important part of being his image bearers. And I think you write that um, there are three, I believe you call them transcendentals, that sort of set mm-hmm. uh, humanity apart from other creatures, from other aspects of God's creation, uh, truth and goodness. But perhaps uh, Christians, of course, have paid a lot of attention to those, but perhaps we've maybe unwittingly neglected beauty to some extent. Mm-hmm. I think some some uh, branches of Christianity sure have, you know, uh, the the headier denominations, the ones that like I'm a part of a denomination that's known for being heady, right, uh, and known for for really loving the systematic approach to uh, to understanding Scripture and and, and God, but uh, but yeah, beauty. You know what's what's so ironic about it is so much of the Bible is is written in story, uh, it's written in story form, and so and then and then there's so much more in the Bible that's poetry, uh, which is intended to be language that is beautiful in its expression and also beautiful in the ways that we try to understand it by turning over those phrases. And so, you know, only a little bit of the Bible is just you know didactic Mm -hmm. the rest of its narrative and storytelling and so it engages the imagination and it makes us wonder what happened and and what people were like and personalities and what the scenes looked like and all that and that's an that's a call for us to be engaging our imaginations and you know the imagination is is a um, is a way to really hide scripture in the heart. We hide scripture in the heart by way of the imagination. We we imagine it Um, and all of this requires us to to not only want to know truth and to not only want to um, practice goodness, but to become uh, fluent in the, the language of, of beauty and, and in the experience of it. Well, the book is Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith. Uh, my guest is the author, Pastor Russ Ramsey. He's a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. What I'm wondering, I, I realize you've, uh, if I recall correctly, that you have written, uh, touched on these various artists and you've written on them uh, chronologically. But I wanted to get first to the one that you use in the title of the book, Rembrandt is in the Wind. Who, who is Rembrandt, and, and what, what is the meaning of, uh, of that title? Of the title, yeah. So that chapter is about Rembrandt's painting. Uh, Rembrandt was a Dutch Renaissance uh, painter uh, who lived in the 1500s, 1600s. Uh, his only seascape uh, is called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it, it used to be in the... Uh, 
Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Uh, and in on St. Patrick's Day, 1990, it was stolen from that museum along with, uh, there were 13 works of art stolen that night um, and they have never been recovered. Uh, and that particular painting was cut from its frame with a knife and uh, the frame actually remains on the wall. So if you return to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston and it's in the Fenway area, um, you will see the frame where the painting used to be, but it's just empty now, um, and uh, which is kind of haunting. But in that painting, uh, Rembrandt included himself as one of the disciples in the boat. And so the boat is being tossed around in the wind in the storm, and Rembrandt is in the boat. So literally, he's in the wind in that painting. Um, but then also, that's a euphemism that law enforcement uses for things that have been stolen and, and not recovered is that they're in the wind. And mm. so that painting is in the wind um, as well. And so it was, it was just kind of a play on on that idea of, of uh, Rembrandt putting himself in that boat and then that painting being, you know, in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. Uh, and, and even those of us that are not that familiar with art, if we just think of some famous paintings we've seen that uh, have come through the ages, Christian scenes, biblical scenes, Jesus particularly, is depicted by uh, artists, it would seem believer and non-believing artists. Why, why, is, why is it that Jesus find, seems to find himself so often in paintings? Right. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible biblical literacy device, um, art, these visual depictions of the ministry of Jesus. So a lot of the old, older paintings would maybe would be ways that people would learn about the Bible um, who maybe didn't have Bibles or maybe didn't, have, maybe didn't read. Uh, but also it's a, it's a way for an artist to, to compose a, a picture um, in such a way that it tells an entire story in a single frame. So Rembrandt has a very famous painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son, in, w in which you see uh, an old, old father embracing a, um, a, a son who is the prodigal son who has returned. And, and, uh, and in that image, you, you see the father and the son in, in the father's embrace. And then next to the father, you see the older brother um, who is you know, looking on disapprovingly, and he's kind of aloof and distant. And then you see two other, three other characters, I think, who are varying degrees of nearness to the scene, um, looking either curious or skeptical or just, you know, um, moved by what's happening. And the way that Jesus tells that parable, we know that he didn't embrace his son in the presence of his older brother. Um, but when Rembrandt puts the scene together, he puts them all in there in one frame, as a way of of presenting that entire parable just in a still, and it's a it's a pretty beautiful and 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 thoughtful way that artists go about telling you stories in just a single canvas, and it'll take your eye through it in a particular order. So when you look at that painting, you, the first thing you'll look at is the father and the son in an embrace, and then your eye will go to the older brother next um, because he's the next dominant and most in the forefront. Uh, part of that painting. And then your eye will start to follow further and further, further back uh, into these other folks who are, and, and you know, it, it invites you to sort of ask yourself, who am I in this painting? Which one is me? Mm. Um, am I the, am I the father? Am I the, the, the son in the embrace? Am I the one who's angry that there's being mercy, that mercy is being shown here? Am I, am I the skeptic in the doorway who's, who's watching, but not really wanting to be noticed? Um, and, and it's, it, it, and it's all there just in a single, in a single canvas. 
And that goes to the subtitle of your book, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith. It could be something overt, such as that depiction of the, the prodigal son, the father embracing him, as you've just described, or it could be something that isn't overtly Christian, but is still teaching us something about, mm-hmm. about life. Yeah, the, uh, the, um, there's a Monet uh, called Impression Sunrise, which is a, a, uh, a, picture, a painting of a harbor where it's mostly blue and there's this orange sun and a little boat out there. Um, but it is the first impressionist painting, uh, technically. Mm. It's, 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 uh, it's where the name impressionism came from. Maybe is a better way to say that. Okay. He submitted it for an ex- exhibition and um, they, they asked him what, he, what the title of it was uh, for the catalog. And he said, well, it's not really a painting of a sunrise. It's more of an, a, an impression of a sunrise. And so he called it Impression Sunrise. And then the critics hated it because they didn't like they, it was it was unfamiliar. It was a new style of painting that wasn't what was popular. And so they called him an impressionist, uh, kind of in a spirit of mockery. And he and his his fellow painters who were all friends, Renoir, Manet, Pizarro, all these people, uh, they just embraced the name. Uh, and 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 there there was a, a a poet journalist at the time named Emile Zola who said impressionists they were called in a spirit of mockery, impressionists they remained in a spirit of pluck, mm. and I love that because it's it's something where you see part of the reason that we have entire wings of art museums devoted to impressionists is because they came together as a community to try to be faithful to something that they believed they were being called to do. But they wouldn't be able to do it just by themselves. They had to. They had to come together as 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 a group, and be willing to be mocked. Uh, and I feel like as a pastor and as just as a Christian in the world today, that there's there's a parallel there for what it means to walk in faith and what it means to walk in obedience to a calling um, when the world may not understand or even appreciate or be ready uh, for what it is that you're trying to do or you believe you're called to do. Um, And so in our church, we have that painting, uh, a reproduction of that painting on the wall um, with a little plaque next to it, like you would see in an art museum, kind of explaining um, that this this was a defining moment in in the world of art that has made its way now into just about any museum you visit um, you will find the room uh, where this began well the first uh, artist in, in your book rembrandt is in the wind is michelangelo a name mm-hmm. uh, familiar to probably nearly everybody hearing this and yet if we were pressed at all to say well who was he when did he live what's he known for might have a little more trouble. Tell us uh, a bit about who he was, but more than that, why you included him in this book about learning to love art through the eyes of faith. Yeah, I, I, it, that chapter is focused on his statue of David, uh, and it's really the story of how that statue came to be. Um, Michelangelo was a savant when it came to art. He was a prodigy. He could He could do anything he wanted to artistically. And my contention... I'm about to say something just completely ridiculous, but it is my contention, and it is this. Uh, It is that Michelangelo's David is the single greatest artistic achievement by a human being in the history of the world. Mm. Okay. I mean, so people can – I'd love to be proven wrong uh, for somebody to say, no, it wasn't. It was this. Mm -hmm. Um, The problems you run into is is don't show me a painting um, because those are two-dimensional and this is three-dimensional. And don't show me a sculpture that's not made out of stone. Um, because sculpture, other sculptures you can add to, you can make corrections, but with stone, you have to be perfect on your first try. And Michelangelo's David is a, a it's perfect. 
it's a perfect um the fact that he's nude uh means that there's there's no like disguising or 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 uh or um faking your way through like um musculature mm -hmm. uh you, it's either right or it's wrong and and we'll know just by looking right we will say that's not what an arm a forearm looks like um and so there's something about that painting that or that's that statue um that has always sort of captivated me as how did this happen and so that chapter is kind of a deep dive not only into how the statue was made but also um the reality that that this this 17 foot tall statue when it's on its base it's 13 feet without its base um is made of a material that's perishing and there will come a day uh, because there are tons of stone pushing down on his legs and ankles there will come a day when he will fall um and because of the substance that he's made of this calcite marble when he falls if 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 he falls from the pedestal he's on now when he hits the ground he's basically going to explode and that'll be the end of that. Um, and so on the one hand, you have this this um, magnificent, perfect achievement uh, and this sculpture that has been around for 500 years and millions and millions of people have traveled to see him. And he's also wasting away. He's he, he's perishing uh, in this world. Uh, and there's something uh, very fascinating to me about about the, that idea that the even the best that we can come up with here uh, in this world, the glory that's a part of it, the beauty, the 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 aspect of it that makes us want to cash in vacation days to go to the other side of the world to just stand in its presence with 300 other people, um, is because there's something inside of us that wants to be in the presence of glory. But any glory that we find here will only be a shadow or it'll only, only be a reflection of, of the glory that we were made to know and enjoy forever, a glory that won't perish, uh, that, that won't fall apart. Um, and so I, that's, that's kind of the thread that I get into as I'm looking into that chapter and studying this amazing uh, statue. And whether it be uh, Michelangelo or Van Gogh, who I want to ask you about next, who you said is one of your favorites or who captivated you as a, as a very young person, this idea of beauty in brokenness, this idea that broken people, as we all are, as all human beings are, yet can create beautiful things because we are created in God's image. I wonder if I could just ask you then about Van Gogh, uh, one who painted paintings of 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 light and and peace in one hand and yet was an extremely troubled individual yeah. as well yeah yeah he um so the chapter in the in the book about van gogh uh is about the only painting that he sold while he was alive so he just sold one painting hmm. as an artist while he lived really um yeah yeah and it's called the red vineyard and uh, and it was purchased at an art exhibition by a friend's by a, one of his friend's sisters so the person who bought it knew him. And that chapter is really, uh, uh, it's, Van Gogh is to me the striving man in Ecclesiastes. He's, he's the guy who is uh, feverishly trying to get out of him what's inside of him. And so he's painting these paintings. And I go through sort of his output and I talk about just the the frenetic pace with which he worked toward the end of his life. He was, he was painting a, an average of a paint, a finished painting every three days. Hmm. Uh, and then the last few months of his life, uh, the last three months of his life, he was averaging uh, one complete painting every day. Um, and, and they're paintings we know they're, they're like, they're, you know, they're, they're paintings that hang in museums that we look at and we see. And, um, and so his story to me is just, it's a heartbreaking one because he's, he's, 
uh, he's trying so hard to find acceptance in the world. He's trying so hard to capture the the beauty that he sees in the world on canvas. Um, uh, but he's but he's working at this pace that ends up just just uh, ruining him. Um, and uh, <laughs> that may not sound like a super fun story. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's 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 there's what I love about that is is the way that he is. Um, pouring himself into this desire to bring something into the world uh, that would that would testify to the glory that he sees and that he recognizes. And so um, it's also just part of the tragedy of Van Gogh is that he became very famous uh, in, the, in the world of art. He died in 1890. And by the turn of the century, he was a household name. He was he was revered around the world as a painter um, and as an artist. But not only that, as a as a uh, as a thinker and as a writer, because he wrote all these letters. And and um, so we get we get into that story, that part of the story a little bit as well, just sort of the the arc that he was he was on the verge of really breaking through, um, but he never got to see it in this life. And you, you definitely talked about this a little bit, Pastor Ramsey, that uh, we, we might visualize the, the artist as the person uh, alone at their easel in an upper room, sort of in isolation, uh, churning out these, these works of beauty. And yet you, you use, I think, uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple of the artists, uh, Vermeer and uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, Basile. Basile, yeah. To, to show the importance of, of community, of, of, a, of a community. A very much parallel to perhaps the the Christian life isn't to be lived yeah. in isolation as well. But perhaps I should let you make the connection. Well, yeah, yeah. So the the chapter about Vermeer, Johannes Vermeer, um, is is really about how how did he do what he did? Because when you look at his paintings, they're just so meticulous and detailed that it, it's hard to imagine how anybody could do that. And then you dig into his story a little bit more, and you and you 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 come to discover, oh, he was using an optical device to achieve the paintings. Um, and very likely uh, uh, through a series of lenses and mirrors um, so that he was kind of, I wouldn't say he was painting by number because, because like there's a, there's a a depth of, of uh, poignancy to the compositions that aren't, you know, just something anybody could do, but, but he, he used, he leveraged technology is kind of the point. He leveraged technology to do what it is that he did. And all of us do that, right? We, we all, like you and I are talking on microphones across an internet right mm-hmm. now. Um, but it's a conversation between two people. Used to be the only way you could have a conversation between two people would be for those two people to be in the same place at the same time. And now we don't have to do that. And so, you know, he, he leverages technology. Uh, he lived in the same town as at the same time as a man named Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek, who was the uh, father of microbiology, and he created and he made uh, microscopes, and he was a lens maker. And so he, and and Leeuwenhoek actually became the uh, executor of Vermeer's estate when he died. So they were connected. Um, but but Vermeer used lenses that were probably made by Leeuwenhoek to be able to paint the paintings that he painted. And Basile, he's another, he's an interesting one, because he, he was a guy, most people have never heard of Jean-Frédéric Basile, um, but he was an impressionist painter, and the reason you haven't heard of him is because he died young in the Franco-Prussian War. Um, but the reason that he's so significant is because, as a, is because of his art, but also because he was he was he came from a family of means, 
And in Paris, he had a, he had an art studio, uh, and he could afford supplies. And he had other friends who were aspiring painters as well, uh, who didn't come from means. Uh, and, and it wasn't as easy for them to to buy art supplies. And so he would invite them to use his studio and to share with him. And he would buy their paintings sometimes. And he would um, encourage them, and they would work together. And that may sound like a really you know that that's in and of itself is a is a beautiful idea and a beautiful story. It just so happens that these friends of his that we're talking about are Manet, Monet, Renoir, mm. Pizarro, um, Alfred Sisley, uh, you know, the, that it was the Impressionists. And they all that was that group. Um, in fact, that's the chapter where I talk about Impression Sunrise from Monet is, is that group of artists really had to band together. I, I kind of describe them as as um, as indie artists in a pop music world like they, they were they were punk rock in a doo-wop world maybe is a better way to say it is they were they were trying to figure out how to do this new thing and and Bazile was a very vital figure in pulling them together and there's actually a painting that he made um called studio nine rue de la condamine and it's a picture of a studio and in it uh is monet and manet and renoir and emile zola the poet hmm. and him and um a musician uh and it was just a group of artists that that lived in the same city and, and encouraged each other and supported each other and, and so much of the christian life is is this call to live in community with one another um not just to have friends and not just to all go to church at the same time but to have people who begin to know you and they know your need and they know how to support you and they know how to speak into your life and encourage you and challenge you and and all of these things and that to me was a pretty beautiful picture of of um community bearing itself out in a beautiful success well, the book is Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith. My guest is Pastor Russ Ramsey. He's a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, and uh, we're obviously not going to be able to get to every artist, but I do want to ask you about Lilius Trotter. Uh, she, mm-hmm. she sort of, I think, stands apart. Tell us about Lilius Trotter. Yeah. Lilius Trotter was, as a young painter, she was a watercolorist, as a young painter was recognized by a guy named John Ruskin in, in London, uh, who was a art professor and critic and painter. Um, but he was sort of a gatekeeper. Like if, if Ruskin was behind you, you had a chance at becoming a successful artist. And he saw in Lilius Trotter um, a natural talent that he wanted to develop. And he told her, you could be the the greatest living painter in Europe. Hmm. Um, the issue for her was she also felt that the Lord was calling her to be a missionary um, to the Muslim women of Algeria. And uh, and Ruskin told her, uh, rightly, you, you're going to have to make a choice um, between being a missionary or being the artist that you have the potential to be, because either one of them will require most of what you have to give. Um, and the and, and there won't be much left for the other one. And she, so she set aside, well, she didn't set aside her art, but she chose the path of being a missionary and she used her art to communicate the gospel pictorially uh, when there were language barriers and things like that. But one of the phenomenons, and the reason I, I closed the book with her, the last chapter of the book is about her, is um, because here's a picture of somebody who on the surface, you might say, as a Christian, you might be tempted to say, oh, look, we can celebrate. Uh, here's this woman who had this chance to do this this thing with art, but she chose the better thing. And what I want to say is not so fast. Uh, it, you, God may be calling you to be an artist. Um, and if he's calling you to be an artist, it's at the exclusion of you being a missionary in Algeria, probably. Uh, and one of the things that was true about her was she continued to paint, but she also knew that her talent 
declined over the years because she didn't spend hours a day working on her craft. She spent hours a day learning Arabic and spending time with children and women in Algeria and then painting when she could on the side. And one of her friends said that she felt the, 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 the pain of the loss of the art most acutely when she was painting, hmm. when she would pick up her brush and she would paint and be aware that she was rusty uh, that that didn't come as naturally. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think who doesn't know that in life? Who doesn't have those experiences where we maybe did something in our twenties when we had all the time in the world and didn't think we did, but we did. And and we you know and and we were we were playing an instrument all the time or a certain sport. And then and then life happens and you you maybe marry somebody or you choose a job or you you know things come along and they they begin to occupy the bandwidth and so we lay things down uh and that's a part of moving through this world is laying things laying good things down that we love and then feeling the ache of of missing those things later and having to reconcile that sorrow with the, the contentment of knowing that this is part of what it means to to be obedient to the lord is is that is that i i can do this um but if I'm if I do this, then I can't devote myself to that, and uh, and and for me that felt like a good way to end the book. Just thinking about who hasn't been there, where where maybe we've um, Van Gogh quoted a um, uh, an old saint where he, that's who said, uh, and most men there exists a poet who died young, whom the man survived, and mm -hmm. I think people walk through this world with that feeling, you know. And and her story is a kind of an inspirational one, but also one that looks the sadness of that in the eye and says, yeah, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Nashville pastor Russ Ramsey, author of Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Lucy S.R. Austin on the remarkable life of missionary author and public speaker Elizabeth Elliot. Because Jim died such a short time after they were married, it was kind of her experience of loss and grief that really ended up being a catalyst, I, I think, for change and her, her thinking and the way she approached missions. That's tomorrow at this same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.